0: One thing that I learned in preparing this sermon is that I've been mispronouncing Thoreau's name for many years. Uh, Growing up, I always heard the name pronounced with the emphasis on the second syllable, Thoreau. You know, which is odd because growing up in South Carolina, normally you overemphasize the first syllable, right? Cement, pecan, right? Uh, but there are passages in the journals of both Thoreau's aunt and his fellow transcendentalist, Bronson Alcott, that the correct pronunciation sounds like thorough, like um, you, cl- you did that task, you know, there was a thorough com- com- completion of that task. And in his hometown of Concord, Massachusetts, uh, school children are taught that thorough rhymes with furrow, like furrow your brow, if that helps you remember it. So... Thoreau uh, was born in eighteen seventeen and died in eighteen sixty two at the far too young an age of forty four In contrast, his contemporary Ralph Waldo Emerson lived to be seventy eight But despite Thoreau's short life, he left a significant legacy that's really just grown in time, to name just one example of how his life and writings continue to fascinate um, new generations just a few years ago on the 150, more than 150 years after, almost 150 years after his death. I hope people are doing anything related to my life and writings 150 years after my death. Uh, But... uh, Students at my undergraduate, um, alma mater, Furman University, built by hand, they're taking a course on Walden, and they built by hand a replica of his cabin on Walden Pond that he also built by hand. And even though Thoreau's admired today in many circles, he also had critics, both then and now. After his death, when his literary estate was being settled, the judge said, now, wait a second. Why should anyone wish to have even a sentence of Henry Thoreau's um, put into print? He just didn't understand. <laughs> you know, Why would you want to print even one sentence? Part of the attraction to Thoreau to many people, though, is this romantic ideal of him out on the Walden Pond as well as his actions for social justice. Thoreau's life at Walden Pond also wasn't all, you know, carefree and no work. And now it's true that he did used to take daily walks of at least four hours. You know, to have a good, you know, true Thoreauvian walk, you need at least four hours. Uh, in his words, you should be sauntering through the woods and over the hills absolutely free from all worldly engagements. So that was true. He did take a walk of about four hours a day, but he also spent at least four hours each day indoors reading and writing in a quite focused and intense way. On a typical day, he would read and write all morning and then go out for his walk around 2 p.m. Also, since we're in a Unitarian Universalist congregation this morning, before I progress too far in talking about Thoreau, I should pause to address the question of whether is it actually fair to claim Thoreau as a Unitarian. As many of you likely know, we UUs have a little bit of a habit of sometimes claiming famous people to be UU if they ever set foot, a single foot, inside a UU congregation once or vaguely expressed a vaguely UU notion at some point in time. In the case of Thoreau, his um, parents were members of First Parish Concord, um, which today is a thriving 700-member Unitarian Universalist congregation. Uh, Thoreau was baptized there as an infant. He was catechized there as a young child. Keep in mind that all of those Unitarian and Universalist and UU congregations that have a history that stretches back at least to the mid or early 19th century or before, that when they were founded, they were Christian congregations, and they certainly were at the At, during in Thoreau's day because it was precisely the transcendentalist movement that Thoreau would grow up to be a part of as an adult as well as the humanist movement in the early 20th century that widened Unitarian Universalism to become more inclusive of all the world's religions. But in 1817, at the time of Thoreau's birth, All of that was in the future. Our famous Unitarian ancestor, William Ellery Channing, would not preach his landmark sermon, Unitarian uh, Christianity, over at the First Independent Church of Baltimore. That didn't happen until 1819, when Thoreau was two. Uh, The American Unitarian Association wasn't founded until 1825. So during Thoreau's childhood, the Unitarian controversy that started at Harvard in 1805, that was slowly playing out. Specifically when he was 10, there was a schism in his childhood congregation between the Unitarians and the Trinitarians. Similar schisms were playing out across New England and often split Um, congregations. When his mother's sisters joined the rival congregation, um, Thoreau's mother first uh, resigned her membership at First Parish to join them, but when she found that her free-thinking views weren't particularly welcome among the Trinitarians, she came back to the family pew at the Unitarian Church, where she and her husband remained members for the rest of her life. That was not true of Henry. Uh, if you visit First Parish Concord today, they uh, still have the letter in which um, Thoreau officially resigned his membership, when as an adult he was presented with a tax bill of the minister. He didn't like the minister, he didn't pay the tax bill, so he wrote the letter resigning his membership. If you're curious, the member in question, I'm going to name names this morning, it's not any big secret, but if you're, and he's dead, right? Uh, if you're curious, the member in question is Barzillia Frost. Barzillia is a good biblical name. If you know your Hebrew Bible well, it's a, quite a few references to a uh, Barzillia. So, Barzillia Frost, uh, that's the same preacher that in Emerson's Divinity School Address is called out for being incredibly boring as a preacher. Uh, <laughs> So it's rough when history remembers you primarily for being hated on by Emerson and Thoreau. Uh, maybe I'll have time one day to preach a sermon on the rest of the story about Barzilia Frost, because I'm told that by other accounts, he was a perfectly adequate minister. Uh, but anyway, he had the unfortunate luck of having two critics, Emerson and Thoreau, who were among the spiritual ancestors of what we today call free-range UUs. Uh that is people who are tangentially associated with Unitarian Universalism or heavily influenced by Unitarian Universalism, but who are not active members of a UU congregation. Uh, Thoreau, for example, as a you know ancient free-range UU, was known to attend Unitarian services periodically if he happened to really like the person who was preaching that day. Uh, also, the Transcendentalists, with whom he associated, were almost all Unitarians. Many of them were either Unitarian ministers or former Unitarian ministers. Uh, Thoreau was also buried at First Parish Concord, the, that Unitarian congregation where he grew up, at Emerson's insistence. The minister at the time, not Reverend Frost, he had moved on. Uh, the minister at the time read some selections from the Bible, offered prayers. Emerson preached uh, Thoreau's uh, eulogy. But now in reflecting on Thoreau's uh, many associations with Unitarianism, I've all of a sudden found myself at the end of his life too early. So if you'll permit me, let's wind back the clock to his college days. Almost 200 years ago, when Thoreau was a student at Harvard College from 1833 to 1837, that school was a strikingly different institution from the Harvard University that is renowned today. At that time, there were less than 500 students enrolled in only a handful of buildings. With unpaved streets and pigsties behind University Hall, it had a distinctly rural atmosphere. Boston at that time was also only a city of 75,000 people. Harvard was a modest place in those days, and it was intensely local, both in its focus and in the students it attracted. Interestingly, there was an early encounter between Emerson and Thoreau when he was a student. Thoreau happened to be assigned to Emerson at one point to have his rhetoric examined, but as far as we can tell, neither of them were particularly impressed with either one of the other at that time. In 1837, Thoreau graduated Harvard at age 20 and landed a job as a teacher. He did not even make it two weeks. In his defense, the precipitating factor was that his supervisor strongly reprimanded him for not caning his students frequently enough. Uh, it was a financial blow to the, uh, Thoreau's family. They did not have a lot of money, and so him resigning this—you um, know—there were only like two teaching positions at that time. So when he resigned one of them, and it paid actually quite well. It paid less than the more prominent congregation. He was actually getting paid more as a teacher than Reverend Frost was getting paid over at First Parish. Uh, so that was a, a blow to them. However, this post-college period was auspicious in other ways. Uh, Emerson's breakthrough essay, Nature, had been published uh, a few months earlier in the spring of 1836 when Thoreau was a senior at Harvard, and uh, that fall he and Emerson's friendship finally began to deepen. A particular note, Emerson was the one who encouraged Thoreau, you know, I think you should start journaling. Well, that really took on. His journals grew to more than a million words. You can buy his eight-volume set edited by Princeton University Press uh, today. The journals began as just kind of a conventional record of ideas, but they grew into a writer's notebook and eventually became arguably the principal creative work of his career are represented by those journals, especially because he died so young before he could bring all of the information in that to full fruition. But as most writers will confess, good writing is hard work. It's a craft that um hopefully improves with time and effort. And in that vein, uh, Thoreau had many failures and struggles in his early aspirations to be a published author. Those of you who remember my sermon a few years ago about Margaret Fuller, she's the third of the transcendentalist big 3, you know, Emerson, Thoreau, and Margaret Fuller. And you may recall that in her position as editor of The Dial, that magazine that published a lot of transcendentalist writings, Fuller became the 23-year-old Henry's um, first editor. And though she accepted one of his first poems for publication, she also wrote a rejection letter that she hoped to publish that essay that he'd submitted along with the poem eventually. And while it is rich in thought, in its present form, she said, the thoughts seem to me so out of their natural order that I cannot read through it without pain. (laughs) Don't hold back, Margaret. (laughs) Tell me what you really think. Uh, Adding insult to injury less than a month earlier from reading that rejection letter, receiving that rejection letter, uh, Thoreau's marriage proposal to um, Ellen Sewell, the daughter of a Unitarian minister, was rejected. But perhaps that was for the best because he became content in many ways as a lifelong bachelor. If you're curious, yes, there is unconfirmed, really unconfirmable speculation that Thoreau was gay. That's complicated to fully address because we're talking about the pre-Freudian mid-19th century. Regardless, it was Thoreau's independence which gave him the freedom at age 28 to build a cabin on Walden Pond where he lived for a little over two years. Walden Pond is more accurately described as a 61-acre lake. It's about a mile and three-quarters um, if you were to walk around it. Emerson had brought approximately 15 acres on the north shore of Walden Pond the year before, and that finally gave um Thorough an opportunity to live into this dream he'd had for quite a few years of building a essentially building a tiny house, as we would call it today, and, and living in it. Uh, so, uh, you know, it gave him a chance to experiment with self-reliance, although his experiment in self-reliance, so heavily reliant on Emerson, uh, is, uh, reveals that most self-reliance turns out to, on closer examination to be a lot more interdependent and relational than is often admitted, you know. And, of course, Emerson, this author of self-reliance, he was able to spend all this time writing and lecturing because his wife and his daughters were cooking his meals and cleaning the house and, you when Thoreau was at Walden, his mother did his laundry, he was often eating at Emerson's house, etc. And so all that being said, Thoreau was well aware that what he was doing was not braving the wilderness. He was under no illusions about that. It was really trying to simulate um, sort of semi-wilderness conditions in a more symbolic or laboratory way. In his words, he said, it has to be s- some advantage to live a primitive and frontier life in the midst of an outward civilization. And in many ways, Thoreau's cabin was as much a headquarters as a hermitage. At one point in 1846, for example, he stood host at the cabin, presumably outside, it was not a big cabin, to the Anti-Slavery Society's annual meeting in commemoration of the West Indian emancipation of slaves, a pointed reminder that there was no, at that point, American emancipation of slaves to celebrate. Overall his 2 years and 2 months at a self-built cabin on Walden Pond were really an incredible success. He produced more writing of a higher quality and of a greater and over a greater range of subjects than at any other time in his life. In the 26 months he completed two complete drafts of his book A Week, a complete draft of Walden, he wrote two lectures and the first third of his book The Main Woods. This is really an amazing output. He produced the fundamental shape and substance of two books and a good part of a third. Thoreau managed to bring to publication only two um, sustained book-length pieces during his lifetime. Both were essentially shaped during those years at Walden Pond. If you're curious to read more of Thoreau, much of Walden is very much worth revisiting, or if you want to start with an essay, Walking is, uh, is arguably the most quintessentially Thoreauvian of his essays. Now, part of his legacy for us today is the ways in which Walden was an intentional alternative to Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, Whereas Smith promoted division of labor as this, you know, unqualified good, you know. So just get, you focus on this widget, I'll focus on this widget, and you focus on this widget, and you just make that for eight hours a day or 12 hours a day, 40 hours or 60 hours a week, 365 days a year. And we'll all just get better at that, and it'll incredibly boost the speed of production. Thoreau, in contrast, saw all the ways that that created alienated labor, because you don't learn anything new when you just make one widget over and over and over ad infinitum. Uh, Thoreau also questioned the wisdom of building an economy on an ever-increasing demand for production and consumption. Instead, in Walden, he advised simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. He said, let your affairs be as two or three, not a hundred or a thousand. Instead of a million, count half a dozen and keep your accounts on your thumbnail. And on this day after the Women's March on Washington, I should also mention that at age 29 during his time at Walden, Thoreau spent a night in jail for non-payment of a poll tax in protest of the ways the government was acting at that time, specifically in protest of the ways tax dollars were being used to support slavery as well as to support unjust wars. His resulting essay, Civil Disobedience, has been an inspiration for many people ever since of seeking to follow one's conscience um, over against a societal status quo and the pressures to conform to those societal scripts. That being said, I should be clear that Thoreau, at least, is no defender of big government liberalism. After all, the opening line of civil disobedience is, I heartily accept the motto that the government is best which governs least and the government is best which governs not at all. And when men are prepared for it, that will be the kind of government they will have. If he were alive today, Thoreau would be, if anything, much more likely to attend his local uh, women's march on Concord than to, like, travel to D.C. or anything like that. Uh, He would encourage us to focus on reforming first our own lives and then our immediate local community. Uh, I both agree with the importance of localism and at least personally think Thoreau's not always our best guide to systemic social change, even though he has some important guide points for us. And as I draw to my conclusion, it's also important to say that Thoreau's death, although it came too soon, is in many ways inspiring. He had health issues at a number of points in his life, and in December of 1860, developed a severe cold. If anything, we can trace it to Bronson Alcott, who visited him while sick. Thanks, Bronson Alcott, right? A lot more to say about Bronson Alcott, but uh, he developed a severe cold that worsened into bronchitis and eventually led to his death um, by um, pulmonary tuberculosis in May of 1862. But by all accounts, he remained this really, he maintained a really remarkable equanimity throughout that time, uh, a real good humor, a real self-possession, even though he was very ill. Two beautiful stories from that time include when Thoreau's um, Calvinistic aunt felt obliged to ask, now Henry, have you made your peace with God? To which he replied, I did not know we had ever quarreled. And near the end, when a friend asked how he felt about his seemingly impending death, he said, I don't know. I'm trying to take it one world at a time. For now, though, I'll conclude not with Thoreau's death, but with a reminder of how he lived. He wrote in Walden, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, to see if I could not learn what life has to teach. And not when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life for living is so dear. Nor did I wish to practice resignation until it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life. To live so sturdily and spartan-like as to put route to all that was not life. To cut a broad swath, to shave close, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms. And if life proved to be mean, why then to get the whole and genuine meanness of it. And to publish its meanness to the world. Or if life were to prove sublime, to know it. By my own experience. All right, one last thing. <laughs> so if we think about having marched on Washington, what's next, right? I want to leave you with one final thought. It's that Thoreau would be more of an advocate if not of just going out and just getting away from it. He really wasn't just flee to the desert. I mean, he, but he would certainly be more of what might be called the Saul Alinsky school of community organizing. There's sort of two major schools of how do we create social change. One's the Saul Alinsky community organizing, step by incremental step. You start by changing that stoplight that is broken and where all the wrecks are happening, and then you build relation. You visit your school board meeting, and then the other from the community the other school of thought is mass protest, and that's what the 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 trick is that the Community organizing stuff gets stuff done. It get you know, because it turns out Trump's still president. Last time I checked, even after the march on Washington. So the uh, the community organizing piece gets stuff done, but it gets stuff done at a lower incremental level, whereas the mass protest gets a lot of people together and can create, a, but can be often symbolic and ephemeral. And so what, what, and so the thing I'll say, and there's a lot more to say about all this, that if there's one book you want to read to say where do we go from here, that book that I would recommend to you was published last year. It's called This is an Uprising. It's a um, study of what worked and what hasn't worked in nonviolent activism in the last century or so by uh, two people called Engler, E-N-G-L-E-R. And what they do is study this... the two schools of thought I'm talking about, and then say, how do we fuse them together? How do we also look at what worked in Occupy and things like that? There's also a book that I've just started to read that's also excellent called The End of Protest, written by one of the leaders of the Occupy movement, saying that, you know, we've actually had protests against the Iraq War that were some of the most massive in history, as well as the Occupy that was some of the most massive in history. This Women's March on Washington, the most massive in history. But it turns out Trump is still president, Occupy got disbanded, and the Iraq War still happened. And we're still in Iraq. So, to think, to wrestle with that, and part of what he what he actually did was move to a small town and is now the mayor. Um, so, kind of creating that social change. So, so this is an uprising. That's the first I'd recommend. The one I'm currently reading myself is the End of Protest right now. Uh, but whatever you do from this place, there's a lot of temptation right now to divisiveness and to hate. So my invitation to you is to continue your journey, to choose to continue your journey in love, to care for one another and to care for this one earth, to do justice and to make peace and to know that wherever you go, um, that whatever sense you've had of hope, of love or peace or joy in this time and place, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with Thanksgiving. Go in peace.